If you have a Bible with you this morning, uh, please open it to Matthew chapter 12. We'll soon be reading from verse 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, or if you simply want to borrow one from us, in the pocket of the pew in front of you has a black ESV Bible, and you can find Matthew chapter 12. The passage that we will be reading from will start on page 766 of that Bible. Last week we saw Jesus have this sort of interaction with the Pharisees over the nature of the Sabbath, and we said that even though that was sort of centered on the Sabbath, it wasn't really about the Sabbath, but about the nature of God and what each one of them made of God. Jesus has a a different perception of God, therefore a different perception of the law than the Pharisees did. The Pharisees seem to think at the very core of who God is that God is a God of demand, a God of obedience, a God who gives the law not because he wants it for people's good, but because he wants people's obedience. We saw that this changes the very nature of how people not only relate to God, but how they relate to one another. It produces a harshness and a coolness towards others. And frankly, it does even to God. It might, in some sense, establish a reverence for God, but hardly could establish a love for him. And Jesus seems to have seen things somewhat differently. God is not a God of demand, but a God of gift and provision. The law is a gift from God for our good. Even as our sin might spoil it and might ruin it, it is a gift for our good. And thus, doing good on the Sabbath is always welcome and right. Even though these were kind of the two ways we set out in the Word, there's no doubt that this is not the only way that we can come to God and come to think of God. There are plenty of people who do think of God as just a God of obedience and demand. Many of these have have left the faith or they've never entered the faith in the first place because they see God as just harsh and unyielding. Many who deny the faith fall into this camp. Well, there are plenty others who think of God simply as a giver, But a giver that is less a giver and more of just a butler who is there to simply do what we want him to do and to help support us and to make sure that our will happens not only on earth but also in heaven. That is not quite the God that Jesus is pointing to either. God is not here simply to support us or to, to help further our will, but rather God provides that which is his will. He provides that which is good for us. He is not demanding so much as he is providing, but he is not serving so much as he is guiding us. He is neither a God of demand nor a God to be demanded of, but he is a God who gives, he provides, he leads us in the good life, he warns us, he calls us, and he directs us. Last week we had centered before us this very doctrine of God, even as it's cloaked by the commands of the Sabbath. But if that is who God is, then who ought his servants be? And more particular than that, who ought his one particular servant be? The one who is to come to set all things right. What should we make of Jesus? Matthew has given us a lot to chew on when it comes to answering that question, what are we to make of Jesus? Quite clearly, Jesus is for Matthew a wonderful teacher, an amazing and powerful healer. He is kind, compassionate, somewhat radical, but such things we should not assume are just Matthew's invention or Matthew's opinions. 
Matthew helps us to understand what drove and defined Jesus and who he even was by stepping out of the narrative, by not continuing his narrative, but sort of as an aside to tell us from the very words of Scripture who Jesus was. Let us then read these words, these seven verses from Matthew 5 to 21, if you would read along with me. Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. Jesus, who is aware of this, which for your knowledge is the, consp- uh, the Pharisees conspiring against him, seeking to destroy him, Jesus, aware of that fact, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of our God. I want to point out from this passage five things for us to consider about Jesus and to consider even then about ourselves as we are found in him going forward. First, Jesus is chosen. Jesus is chosen. The passage before us starts something as a surprise. After all, Jesus finds out about this murderous impulse from the Pharisees, and we're likely to think that as we would come to know him as the Lion of Judah, that he might very well stand up and fight against such things, that their demand of of obedience to themselves and their seeking to end his life would be met with sharp words of rebuke, their hardness of heart. And Jesus doesn't stand up to them. He does not fight them, but he rather withdraws, which sounds fairly pacifistic and weak, and perhaps it is. It doesn't affect his popularity. People still follow him. It doesn't affect his power. He still heals all who come to him for healing. The question still stands as to why he does this. Why doesn't he take the fight to them? They are clearly in the wrong. They're clearly in the wrong about a major issue, and they are the leaders in Israel. If anyone deserves to be picked out to have the truth spoken to them, it's the Pharisees. But Matthew explains to us that there's a really good reason why he doesn't. For that reason, he quotes Isaiah 42. Here in Isaiah 42, we have the the shift that has already occurred in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah earlier does have passages of hope in it, has passages of good tidings for the people of Israel. We know many of those. But for the first 40, 39 chapters of Isaiah, there is a lot of focus on destruction, not just the destruction of the nations around, but even on the difficulties that are going to come down and the judgment that's going to come down on Israel. And then In Isaiah 40, the tone changes. It's a minor key before, and it's a very major key afterwards. There's still sharp notes of destruction, sharp notes of judgment, but it's incredibly hopeful. And all of the hope from Isaiah 40 and on rests not only in what God will do, but specifically what God will do through this servant. 
passages that we know of, like Isaiah 52 and 53, that talk about his crucifixion are part of this, but it's part of a larger picture where God will send the servant to do his will and to bring about all the redemption that he has promised. So the first thing that Isaiah does is affirm that Jesus is indeed chosen. And when we think of chosen, we think of something that's done after we already know the characteristics of the thing or the properties of the thing or the goodness of what we're choosing. My daughter currently works at an ice cream shop, which is great for her and bad for all of my family. Uh, we, we eat a lot of ice cream nowadays. And if I'm going to go down and I'm going to buy ice cream, if I'm going to choose ice cream, I go and I have in my mind what I want. Do I want vanilla that day? Do I want chocolate? Do I want nuts in it? Do I, do I want swirls in it? What, what do I want? And then I, I find a variety that fits those properties, that fits what, what I want that day. And so when we think of choosing, that's oftentimes what we think of. We think of, of somebody having something in mind, a kind of characteristic, a kind of property. But God doesn't seem to choose like that. He doesn't choose Jesus that way, even if he says here that he is the one he has chosen It's easy, if you conceive of choosing that way, to think that what God has done is to look down and to see in Jesus the kind of characteristics or profile that he would want in somebody. He's scanned the earth, and this one lone gentleman from Nazareth happens to have the properties in him that God really cherishes. He's he's meek, and he's kind, and he's compassionate, he's faithful, and God says, I wanted all those things, and so you are going to be my servant. But it's quite clear that Jesus doesn't work like that. Matthew has given us a birth narrative where it's clear that Jesus was set out from this before in the language of Paul. He did anything either good or evil. He didn't do anything right or wrong. He was not even a human being yet. And God sent the Spirit to talk to Mary about the fact that he was bringing Jesus into being. God doesn't choose Jesus because he has certain characteristics, because he fits a certain profile. Rather, it works in the opposite direction. Jesus is those things because God has chosen him. Because he is the one that God chose to become incarnate as. Jesus isn't chosen because he has such traits. He is chosen so that he will have such traits. And all of this is confirmed, not given to him, but confirmed at his baptism, where we have this very sort of language used. When Jesus comes up out of the water, the Spirit descends upon him. And in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we read, The heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is beloved, He is beloved because he always does what is pleasing to the Father, yes. But more than that, because he has always done what is pleasing to the Father. Jesus is beloved because he is not a son of God, but because he is the son of God become incarnate in the man, Jesus Christ. The Father chose Jesus because Jesus is the very embodiment of God himself. His choice of us, then, is similar He did not choose us. 
because of any properties that he saw in us, because of anything that he saw in you as far as characteristic, because you were faithful or because you were kind or because you were joyful at his word. None of those things are the reason why God chose you. Rather, it always works in reverse. First Peter says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Your ways before you were futile, You were lost and wandering in them, but God chose you not because you were worthy. He chose you that you might become worthy. Jesus is chosen. Secondly, Jesus is equipped. The second thing we read about him is that his spirit is put upon Jesus and that he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. That second part of verse 18 is reminiscent of the book of Judges. When we are introduced into the cycle of the Judges, this is part of reading the book of Judges. You find out that the people are going to sin. They're going to turn away from God. God will bring oppression upon them from the outside peoples, the Philistines, the Amorites, whomever it might be. That oppression will come upon them. And then God will hear their cries and will send them a judge. The first time we read of this is sort of the epitome of the whole thing in Judges 3. This is what Judges 3 says, verses 9 and 10. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord in their oppression, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. So the judge there is not someone who simply stands there and says, you've done wrong, you've got to pay him $5, you did right, congratulations. That's not exactly what he's looking at. It's the judge who brings justice is the idea. Sometimes that means that he is going to deliberate between his brothers and his sisters. But here at this moment, it means that he is bringing justice to the people of Israel who have outside oppressors coming upon them who should not be oppressing the people of God. And so God raises up judges to bring justice for them, to save them, and to deliver them from these outside opponents. Yet as time continued, Israel came to understand that these sort of tribal leaders, they were chosen haphazardly, almost as it seems, from the people of Israel. Eventually, those people would die. There would be no rightful replacement for them. They weren't kings. They were just random judges that God poured his spirit upon. The Canaanites would eventually come back and oppress Israel more. So the people understood that what they needed was a succession of judges, a succession of people to rule over them, a succession of people to help them with their judgments, a succession of people to help them from foreign invaders. What they needed was a king. And so the same kind of language is then used when they ask for a king in 1 Samuel 8. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And there again, you've got this idea of a king, a king who is going to be given the Spirit of God and will judge over the nations. 
And so they were given one, Saul. He was equipped to be king. He was given the spirit of God. He was meant to rule and to judge Israel. He failed. And God put David on the throne. But still that picture of the king eventually changed because not only was he to be king over Israel and judge Israel, soon Israel was reminded that this king is going to be king over all of the world. Psalm 2 speaks to this, as does the book of Micah, chapter 4. There Micah says that many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their shears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken." This is the very role that Jesus then fulfills and that Isaiah also upholds. That the Spirit of the Lord is given to this one, but he is not just king over Israel, he is not just judge over Israel, but over all of the nations. And he will bring peace and contentment to all of the nations, stability, justice, and good to all of his people. He will judge the Gentiles. The wicked will be punished. The unrighteous will meet the edge of his sword. And his people will be delivered. God's mission for his servant, chosen as he was, could never just be for some sort of a provincial peace, a specific remnant of people receiving his comfort. But because he is God of the entire world, it always had to be a servant who was there to help, to deliver, to judge over the entire world. In other words, Jesus is all that we could ever hope for or want. He is the only judge. He is the only jury. He is the only king that we could ever long for. We too, then, should pursue justice and peace for all, both through the physical realities that Jesus has laid before us as he has healed people. We ought to seek to give relief to people who suffer in this world, whether from physical maladies, from economic realities, whatever it is, when they have a lack of what they need in this world, we should be some of the first people to step up and provide for those things. But also through the Spirit of God, not just meeting the needs of the needy and the poor, but meeting the needs of the lost and sinful. Jesus was called and equipped for both, and so are we. It would make sense then If he was supposed to come and proclaim justice to all these people, he was supposed to come and be king over all the earth, that he would stand and fight. All the more reason that Jesus would not allow the Pharisees to threaten his life or even to lead others astray, to lay burdens upon them that they can't possibly carry. That's when we find third, Jesus is meek. He's meek. Jesus doesn't take up the fight. Verse 19 tells us why. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Jesus refuses, even for those people who have the wrong impression of God, even for those who teach others the wrong thing about God, he refuses to take up the mantle and fight and to quarrel and to banter and debate. Jesus is going to make his plea differently. There will come a time 
when Jesus' name will be proclaimed in the streets, when Jesus will send out his disciples to speak of him. Here, he's telling those who are healed to not make him known. Don't tell people about me. There will come a time when he will go to his disciples and say, all authority has been given to me. You are to make me known to the world. But not until then. Not until it has all completed and been accomplished. People are not to know of Jesus simply as a good teacher and a healer. They are not to know of him outside of his death on a cross and his resurrection. His name is not to be proclaimed until all is fully known and accomplished. So it can be proclaimed rightly and fully. And even then, it will not be proclaimed by him raising his voice, by him screaming out in the streets, by him crying out that this is unfair and unjust. He will close his mouth instead of calling down the legions of angels that could come after him and calling down curses which would take effect immediately upon those who seek to oppress him. Instead, he keeps his mouth shut that the evil might have their way with him because he commands it to be so. Our redemption comes solely because Jesus does not open his mouth, because he is passive, because he waits upon the Lord. Do not take this to mean that controversy does not find Jesus. It's quite clear controversy finds him. Matthew has much more controversial things coming up, and once Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he's going to be hit by it every single day. But Matthew is raising a good point, the one that comes through very, very clearly in the book of Matthew. Jesus does not seek out fights, and Jesus does not seek out leaders to knock down. He only does so when they come after him. He is not contentious. He is not quarrelsome. When controversy comes to him, when he needs to handle it, he will handle it, and he will not flinch to do so. But he does not seek it out. Christians are probably too desirous of controversy, of seeking to make their opinion known on every little thing, of seeking to be experts in everything, which sometimes accords to faithfulness in none. There are enough controversies in this world without you having to go out and find them and seek them. And they'll find you. You don't have to look for them. You don't have to write about every little thing that comes across your feed. Let the controversies that matter come. And when they come, be equipped to handle them. Let us worry about those things that are most important and fight for those things that come to us in our time and place. Jesus was meek, and so ought we be. Fourth, we find here that Jesus is compassionate. He is compassionate. Reeds were used as measuring rods. They were used to give this sort of precise measurement for, for projects that people were doing. And they were also then used for support, perhaps for walking sticks or whatever. So it doesn't take much imagination. I don't, I don't know how this came to be, be translated bruised, I don't think of it as bruised reed, but, but bent might be better. If you had a reed and it got bent, it was almost useless for either of those things. You couldn't, you couldn't use it as a walking stick. You couldn't use it for support. And you certainly couldn't use a bent one for measurements because it would throw you off. It is, as it were, trash. 
the wick that no longer gives light in the middle of the night when it, it's just emitting smoke does you absolutely no good. You are gathered in a tent and all you have is a smoldering wick. All it is doing is providing you with pollution, things that you are then going to have to cough up so much later. It gives you no light. It is best if you take care of it, if you put it out, if you take it outside the tent and throw it away. Jesus is doing nothing less than starting a revolution. This is the coming of the kingdom of God into the world, the kingdom that stands against, quite frankly, most of what the Jews have stood for and everything that the Romans have stood for. When you look around and you see revolutionaries in our world, even those that boast that they are most for the little man, they're most for the the working class of people, they're most for those who are rising up against the the evils of capitalism, or whatever the case might be, those who are wealthy and rich and powerful, those revolutionaries who say that they are fighting for them. It's hard not to think of Mao's land reform campaigns or Stalin's death camps or what other sort of left-wing leader you might have in mind, either on the left or on the right. It's clear that revolutionaries have very little time for people who are of no use to them. And they can get rid of them If you are not part of the revolution, if you're not helpful to the revolution, if you're not good for the revolution, well, it's all about the revolution. It's not about the people. The people are tools. Bent reeds are thrown away. Smoldering ricks are exhumed. Jesus refuses, even as he is bringing this sort of revolution of the kingdom of God into the world. He refuses to see people as means. They are always ends. The kingdom of God is people. He does not heal people to gain fame, but he heals people for their good. He does not toss away sinners because they're no use in a holy kingdom, but he restores them and redeems them. Jesus steadfastly refuses to chuck people out of the kingdom because they're difficult, because they're helpless, because they're broken, because they're bruised and bent. He sees the image of God in them, cherishes them, he has compassion upon them, and he seeks to give them hope. The kingdom is not built, unlike all of the other revolutionaries, the kingdom of God is not built on our power, on our goodness, on our strength, on our might. It is built on his. And therefore, he doesn't need reeds or wicks. He doesn't need healthy people. He doesn't need strong people. But because it's based on his power, he can take in all who come to him. He is both compassionate and powerful. He is compassionate enough not to throw us away because we're broken. But he's powerful enough to heal us to strength. Jesus is compassionate. But lastly, Jesus is also victorious. Interestingly, this end of verse 20 begins with that weird word, until. 
So it makes it sound like a bruised reed he will not break, but there will come a day when he will. Like, he won't do that until this happens. He will be compassionate and he will be merciful, but that compassion and that mercy will not last forever. It has a hard expiration date because one day his compassion will be needed no longer. His upholding of of those who are broken and who are almost out of light will be no more because they will be healed and they will be full and they will be strong because justice will come to victory. The judgment of God will one day be completed and finished. Justice will, in the words of the prophets, roll down like water. All that is good and right and true will happen. Right will win out, and justice will be no longer named on this earth. The massive weight of the presence of the king and the judge, the chosen one of God, will be like that asteroid that scientists say fell upon the earth and destroyed all the dinosaurs back in the day. You've seen recreations of that, that huge Massive city-wide asteroid that hits the ground and, and spews heat and fire all over the globe, eventually killing off all of those big lizard bird things. I wish scientists would stop coloring those things. They have no idea what color they are. It's ridiculous. Never mind. One day, the weight of the return of our Lord will do away with the wicked, with the wretched, with the oppressors, all will be as those dinosaurs were. Nothing more than a memory fossilized in our heads, only to exist as some sort of faint, long-ago recollection of the way things used to be. Justice will be seen and felt When Jesus, the bringer of that justice, who has already completed it and will one day bring it to its finality, comes. That is nothing less than our hope. It's the hope of every man, woman, and child. It is the the hope of all, Jew and Gentile. The hope of the nations. He has brought justice to complete and total victory in the cross, and he will one day bring it to bear on all people. So hope in him. Hope that your sin might be forgiven. Hope that a beautiful future beyond this abject mess of a world. Hope in Jesus that the wicked will receive what is due to them. Hope in him that suffering and oppression will be made right. Hope in him to make all that has produced sadness and sorrow and grief and pain might not just be brought to an end, but might be shown themselves as sources of joy and goodness for us. Hope in the one that took on death and sin and pain on the cross and showed himself victorious over the grave. There is no one no one like Jesus. There are plenty of people in this world who parade themselves 
like messiahs, who proclaim themselves, their ideas, their thoughts, their very way of life, their presence, their path, their procedures, as sort of a balm for the problems of this world. They tell you that they're able to give you the life that you've never had but have always dreamed of. They will give you the ability to deal with your past. They will even give you public policy solutions for all the ills that we face. They will all fail you. Every last one of them. There is only one Jesus. You need no other and you can have no other. Press into him, love him, fear him, trust him. For in him, all sadness and sorrow will one day find their end. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let us pray. Our Lord Jesus, we are so grateful to know you and to be known by you. We have heard of your greatness. We have felt your greatness. We've seen your mighty works. We trust in even more to come. I pray that you might continue to show us your glory. Make your glory known in the drawing of people to yourself, in the forgiving of sins, in the renewing of lives, in making new and sanctifying, and finally and ultimately glorifying your people. We ask this for our good and for your glory. Amen. If you would.